Good morning, everyone. Hi. <laughs> All right, so to start our time together today, I'm gonna read from Galatians 6. So if you'd like to turn there with me, you're more than welcome to. There should be a Bible in the pew in front of you if you didn't bring one today. All right, so Galatians 6, I'm gonna begin in verse one. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another burdens in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever a person sows, he will, whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows in the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will also, at the proper time, if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Thanks, Ellie. Good morning. My name is Todd. Um, I'm one of the pastor elders here at Transform. And every once in a while, I get the blessing and the honor of being able to come up here and share the Word of God with you guys. Um, last night, uh, my wife and I were invited to a friend's house for dinner. I was about three-quarters to a third of the way, two-thirds of the way through this, through studying. Wasn't fully prepared. Didn't really want to go out. Um... But, as I analyzed the text and its implications, uh, it became very apparent to me, uh, by way of the Holy Spirit, that I couldn't take this text and its implications seriously and also ignore people. And also, <laughs> and also ignore fellowship. Uh, so as a result, we went. Our kids played together. We had a meal uh, we enjoyed time and fellowship with brothers and sisters. Um, but also as a result, I was up till 3 a.m. last night. <laughs> um, uh, I was up till 3. Um, I got up at 7. Uh, um, and then it was two hours of running around, getting the kids together. Uh, my wife doesn't actually set an alarm because the baby wakes up at 7 every morning anyway. Guess who slept in? <laughs> um, so, all that to say, the last 12 hours of my life have been tumultuous. And I am, um, I am feeling weak and tired. I've had too much caffeine and not enough protein or carbs. Um, so, I, I just say that for the sake of being transparent before you all. Um, I'm doing nothing that the Holy Spirit is not doing first. So, to that end, let's, let's pray for our time in the Word together. Um, Father, I thank you that when I'm weak, you're strong. I thank you 
that your grace is sufficient for all of us. Lord, I pray that as we dive into the word this morning, we would not listen to agendas, to opinions. We would listen to your word. We would take what you have for us, Lord. We would realize what it demands of us. We would submit ourselves to you, Father. Father, I submit myself to you now. Pray nothing that I'm about to say goes against your word or your will, Father. I pray for a blessing on all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this week we're discussing kind of the next round in dialogue uh, between Jesus and his detractors, the multiple factions of leaderships within Judea and Israel uh, that that are not fans of Jesus. And it's been a little bit comical, in my opinion, Um, and it's going to get even more comical as these leaders in different positions keep approaching Jesus um, thinking this time, this time we're going to get him. We're going to nail him down. We're going to, I should not have said that that way. (laughs) (laughs) That's, excuse me. This time we've got him. It is, that's probably not the most stupid thing I'm about to say. Oh, (laughs) uh, it's, sorry, it's not unlike a Looney Tunes cartoon, <laughs> like an old Wiley E. Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons. Those were like my favorite cartoons growing up as a kid, but these, the, these Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, they're like, they're like Wiley Coyote. They're bringing out their Acme Dynamite kits. They assemble the pulleys and the levers and the tar and the feathers, and Jesus just says something so basic. He goes, meep, meep, and he runs off. I told you, not the dumbest thing. (laughs) The whole thing blows up in their faces. They get tarred and feathered, and they end up running into a wall that was painted to look like a tunnel. Um, I open lighthearted because this particular Looney Tunes episode deals with the subject matter that can make us feel uncomfortable. The passage we're going to cover today has some baggage around it. And not baggage that comes with it inherently, but baggage that we have placed around it. Uh, The baggage, or the passage we're talking about, is going to be in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. If you have a Bible and want to go ahead and start turning there, uh, while I talk, we'll read it in a minute, but I will briefly summarize it now. So it's the story of the Pharisees and the Herodians, they come to Jesus asking if they should pay taxes to Rome. They think this will trip him up, but it doesn't. He responds to them with the famous, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. And they're all shocked. This passage has been used to try to answer the question for modern Christians and their relationship to taxes and how we should engage in the government in politics. Are we uncomfortable yet? Um, and that's, that's frankly, going into this, I, I'm glad I like, had a month notice for this because that's what I thought at first as well. And it's also worth note- mentioning that the cultural and historical context that this all takes place in has some similarities 
with what we see in the news today with the conflict in Israel-Palestine. The similarities, they're not one-on-one, but the broad strokes are, are can, you can see some parallels. And I am aware of that. I am aware of how when we read some of these words, how we think about them, what we feel the implication is and how we feel we have to act in response to it. But those things are not the main point of the text. The main point is who Jesus is and what he has to say. And, and you might say, well, he talks about government, so therefore we got to talk about government. And you're right, he does. He does talk about government. But his instructions go much deeper in just how to fill out your W-4. So if you're hoping that's what you're going to get today, I'm sorry. Um, but I sympathize with you. I have spent many church gatherings and Bible studies going, oh, we're going to talk about this subject? Great. Now the pastor can just say exactly the right answers, and as long as I parrot those exact words for the rest of my life, I will always be right about everything. And that's not how it works. I wish it did sometimes. I still wish it did. I wish I could come up here and say do X, Y, Z, and we could all go and we do those things, and all our lives are better for it. But it's not. It takes study. It takes time spent analyzing it. So, but then what do we do with all this angst, with all this anxiety about these topics that make us feel uncomfortable? Thanksgiving's coming up. Is anybody nervous about a certain relative that they're going to have to sit and possibly talk with? Um, And if you're not, if you're like, oh, I love talking about politics at Thanksgiving, you're that relative. Just <laughs> like, like, oh, <laughs> I hate to tell you, but that's, that's, that's the first application of the day. Um, <laughs> well, first off, it's, it's not that I think the Bible is silent on these issues. It's just that where we are in Mark is not where we go to for these answers. And I think many have tried and ended up trying to use the Bible to say what they wanted to say instead of what the Bible actually says. So the first thing we do to find these answers is we open our Bibles. We open God's words, and we conform to what it says. Second thing is we don't do it alone. Find someone else in the body to walk with you. Have a cup of coffee. Have a meal together. Break bread with one another. Open your Bibles and say, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I'm confused. This is frustrating and scary. I don't get it. I, people are telling me one thing. I think the Bible says something different. What do you think? Those of you that have been going here a while, grab somebody who's new. Grab a face you haven't recognized. We should work together in the way that Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we exhort you, brothers and sisters... Warn those who are idle. Comfort the discouraged. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't stifle the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. But test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every evil kind. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless as the coming, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do this together as one unified body of Christ. Right, pre-sermon, sermon over. <laughs> Let's hop into the text. As I was saying, Mark twelve chapter, Mark chapter twelve, verse thirteen. I will go ahead and read through the whole thing, and then we'll start uh, dissecting it. So. Starting in verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came to him, he, they said, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and his inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Pharisees were a tradition uh, from Judaism that began with the intent of steering the nation of Israel in a way that would be pleasing to God. They thought that not just through their adherence to the law, but by establishing a stricter set of customs and traditions that the nation of Israel would continually be pleasing to God, and they would never need to be exiled again. It was their goal to keep the nation and culture inherently Jewish. So imagine their disappointment when the Romans take over, and the people they decide to put over most of the country is not a Jewish family from the line of David, but Herod, who is from a clan of the Edomites. Um, Carson, there should be a slide of a map somewhere. Um, I have a laser pointer. I'm so excited. <laughs> like, so um, here, here's a map of, of the Middle East pre the uh, exile into Babylon. You can see the northern kingdom of Israel, which was uh, first attacked by the Assyrians, and they were brought into exile. Later on, you see down here, you have the southern kingdom of Judah, which, um, after disobeying the Lord, uh, they were also attacked by the Babylonians and then brought into exile. And then just south here um, is the kingdom of Edom, which, if you know your Old Testament genealogy, uh, you'll know the Edomites were uh, descendants from Esau the twin brother of Jacob, the same brother who Jacob stole a birthright and a blessing from. So already some sibling rivalry from the start. And after the Babylonian conquest of both the southern kingdom of Judah and the nation of Edom, um, the Edomites moved north into the former's land, and they established small nomadic uh, tribes throughout the mountains of the region. Uh, you, you can go ahead and kill that side, Carson. And there they were, waiting for the Jews when they returned to the promised land. Non-Jewish pagans, who are not just pagans in general, but historic rivals of the Jews. Now the Hasmoneans, who were the closest thing that the Jews ever got to their own king between Persia and Greece, did force the Edomites to convert to Judaism. Um, do you think that was enough? Especially for the Pharisees? No, Israel always treated the Edomites as second-class citizens from that point forward. 
So when Rome comes marching in, who do you think the Edomites side with? And when Rome takes over Judea, they install, install the Edomite family of Herod as governors. Imagine how the Jews feel, especially the Pharisees. When this occupying, Rome-supporting, fake Jew is put on the throne of Israel. These guys don't like each other. They want a tradition, the Pharisees want a traditionally Jewish nature, nation. They want the laws and customs set by Torah, which is the first five books of the Hebrew Old Testament, to be the law of the land. A culture and a nation that they thought would please God. The Herodians, on the other hand, the supporters of Herod, wanted Israel to look more like Rome. They wanted to look more like the rest of the modern world, to be more accepting of the Greco-Roman culture, of the polytheism, and to be okay with the moral ethic detached from the laws of Torah. And Jesus is a threat to them both. So the Pharisees and the Herodians team up. They may not have liked each other, but if you keep the status quo, it means they both get to have a lot more money, power, and influence than they would if they had actually listened to this guy Jesus and if they let the people listen to him. So they plot together to make Jesus look bad. Either way, he's going to say something that the people don't like and they'll stop following him, or maybe, if they're lucky, he'll say something that the Roman government doesn't like and they'll arrest him. So first they open an attempt with flattery. Jesus, man, you say all the right things. You do all the right things. You don't sweat other people's opinions. Hey, really quick, could you uh, weigh on this super hot button issue? They try to stroke his ego, get him to let his guard down. Maybe he'll feel safe and say something dumb. That would work on them. <laughs> like, <laughs> in fact, it did work. We see time and time again, and this was just a matter of, of the culture of the ancient world, if you wanted, and really the world today, if you wanted something, you use flattery. If you want something, you butter, you butter people up. So take the book of Daniel, for instance, in Daniel chapter 6. Um, this is a story we know. I'm going to read the first kind of half of it. Chapter Daniel 6. It's a lot of words. <laughs> Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom stationed throughout the realm. And over them, three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself among, above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole, whole realm. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they couldn't find no charge of corruption, for he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, We will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went together to the king and said to him, and, and here it is, May King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, advisors, and governors, have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown to the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that as law of the Medes and Persians is irrevocable, irrevo I don't know how to say that word, <laughs> and cannot be changed. 
So King Darius signed the written edict. They butter him up, and they get what they want. And we know the rest of the story. Daniel prays anyway. He's thrown to the lions, but God protects him. But they kissed up to Darius to get it done. And the Herodians had probably witnessed this as well. If we remember way back to Herod's birthday, um, when his uh, stepdaughter slash niece or something gross <laughs> um, that makes him uh, dances for him, and he makes this wild promise. And because of it, he, it ends up leading to the beheading of John the Baptist. History is filled with foolish kings who let flattery overrule justice and righteousness. But Jesus is a different type of king. He knows the game they're playing. He knows how they feel about him. He knows their heart. He knows our heart, our heart as well. So when they ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? He's not having it. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So this was a contentious issue. I say was, it's taxes. It's never not been contentious. Um, but right here, it's especially tense. Do you pay taxes to an occupying invader? Or are they the rightful ruler? And therefore, we are obligated to pay those taxes. Remember our scene. It's Jesus, the Pharisees, the Herodians. The disciples would be there as well. One of them being Matthew, a former tax collector. Another one being Simon, a zealot. Zealots were, uh, they were like terrorist cells that lived in the mountains and tried to attack uh, Roman units and, and Jewish groups that were supporting Roman units like tax collectors. Um, Simon wanted to do violence against people like Matthew at times. They're here listening to this conversation. As would the common folk who are around who had felt the pain of Roman occupation, and as would the Roman guards themselves, all leaning in, what's he going to say? Some guard might be placing their hand towards their hilt in case things get out of hand. Some Israelites may be doing so as well, hoping that this is the start of their revolution, all on the edge of their seat. And he asks for a coin a Roman denarius. So, this does a couple things. First, it reveals their hypocrisy. Oh, you can save that for later. <laughs> I'll leave it up. It's, I don't care. Whatever. <laughs> um, they have this Roman-minted coin on them. You might be able to argue that maybe the Herodians just had it on them, but verse 16 says they brought a coin. It lumps both groups in both the Herodians and the Pharisees, they had the coin. They have an opinion. Carrying this denomination is a choice. Um, money didn't work like today where it's mostly universal within one nation. Um, you know, even today, we're 90 miles from the Canadian border and you might still be hard-pressed to find some Canadian money. But back then, the size, look, and weight of money was always changing and was much more specific to the time and place that was going on at that point in history. So they could have rejected Caesar's money. They could have used something different. Might have made life a little bit more difficult. But if it's important to you, right, 
but it is Caesar's money in their pocket. And it's Caesar's face. So, Carson, now you can look at it. Second use of the word of the laser pointer. So, on this, this is one of the coins that um, would have been referenced. We don't know the exact one, but that's, that's basically what it would have looked like. And here on the front, you can see on the head side is the face of Tiberius Caesar, um, who was uh, Caesar at that point. And the script around it, uh, over here on this size, side, says this, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the back here, this script says, High Priest, holder of tribunician power for the twelfth time. So that coin says has the image of Tiberius Caesar, son of God, and high priest. As an aside, I think it's fair to say that the Jews did have a genuine moral problem here. We look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 4. It says, Do not make an idol for yourself, whether it's the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or the waters under the earth. It would not be very hard to argue that those coins jingling around in our pocket is an idol to Caesar. That's what the zealots certainly would have said. But that really doesn't appear to be the concern of the Pharisees. They don't care very much. And they care super hard about looking like they follow the whole law. And they don't have any qualms about carrying this. So it's not a problem for them. But it's Caesar's money. It has his face on it. So give to Caesar what belongs to him. Pay your taxes. That's it. Pay your taxes. Sermon over. Everybody leave. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, as I was saying before, this passage is not only about paying taxes. It is deeper than that. But we really cannot overlook that Jesus instructs the people to pay their taxes to a government who in a few days are going to crucify him. He's instructing to pay taxes to a government that will kill him and kill his followers after that. He's instructing them on how to live a civil life. And it's a way that is, frankly, inconvenient to him and his friends. Um, this idea popped up in the 20th century, um, probably other places as well, that religion and politics don't mix. You have this set of standards and practices when living your religious life and a different one when operating within the public square. And that's, that's not true. The way you live your life in all aspects, including civil discourse, is meant to be done in worship of King Jesus. So to that end, Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and God's the things that are God's. In this, this statement, it's actually a twisting of a different saying that became common during the Maccabean Revolt. Um, if you don't know, the Maccabean Revolt was a, uh, one of the many struggles for Israel's independence since the return from exile in Babylon. It's recorded in a book called the Maccabees, go figure, which are a part of the writings we call the Apocrypha. Now quick, quick, promise quick. <laughs> 
uh, a Bible history lesson. The, the Apocrypha is a collection of what we call intertestamental writings, books written between the New and Old Testament. Some Christian traditions believe that these books belong in the Bible. We have transformed, as do the majority of other Protestant traditions across the world, do not believe they belong in the Bible. This is not a salvation issue. Um, there's no info in these texts that add or take away from the gospel. So the traditions that appeal to these books um, may still be very well, brothers and sisters. The reason we don't is because Jesus and the New Testament authors don't appear to. Um, because they do quote the Apocrypha in the New Testament. Uh, as we're about to talk about here in our passage in a minute, there's also a story in Jude's epistle um, that's kind of odd. That comes from the apocryphal writings. There's some other kind of quotes and places that I heard while researching this, but I couldn't um, confirm it enough to surely tell you from here. Um, but we do see these texts quoted in the New Testament. But it's different than when they quote the Old Testament. When the Old Testament is quoted, there's some sort of qualifier that gives authority to the Old Testament. You'll see, for it is written, have you not read, for the prophets say, something like that. But the apocryphal writings are not given the same respect or authority when quoted. They're more quoted in a way we quote movies. When we say something we're all familiar with and we know what it means, you know, ogres are like onions. <laughs> uh, stay gold, pony boy. Um, yeah, most of you didn't get that last <laughs> Um but we all, well, the first one, we all know what I say when I'm ascribe, when, I, when I say ogres are like onions. I'm not ascribing transcendent, made-for-all-time authority to Shrek. <laughs> and when quoting the Old Testament, we and the, are not supposed to flip the meaning and twist around like Jesus does here. He uses it way more liberally than he would with an Old Testament passage. So the quote he's referring to and um, it is, sorry, the quote he's referring to is from the first book of Maccabees in their second chapter that says, pay back the Gentiles what they deserve and obey the commands of the law. You can see the parallels here. You can see how it's similar and how saying what Jesus said would remind people of that. In fact, there was probably some, some you know, the, the Jewish zealots around who heard that and thought that quote first and goes, Finally! You know, and, and, and then he goes, wait, what did he say? Oh, dang, all right, never mind. But there's definitely a different implication and meaning here than what Jesus had, right? The implication of what the Gentiles deserve, especially in the context of a revolution, would be death, or at least exile. But Jesus here flips it. He flips a common turn of phrase, and in so doing so, he reorients reorientates the hearts to what it should be. Hey, it's Caesar's money. You took it. If you took it and he says there's a tax on it, then pay it. But more importantly, you've got something that belongs to God. And likewise, you need to give that to him. So what do we have that belongs to God? Well, let's start where Jesus started. They brought, they brought the coin. Whose inscription, whose image and inscription is this? He asked. And they said, Caesar's, they replied. If Caesar's image 
denote that it belongs to him, then likewise, God's image denotes what belongs to him. Mm-hmm. Where can we find God's image? Yeah, yeah, way back in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own, own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. So you, me, about 7.8 billion of us walking around right now, made in the image of God. So disciples of Jesus, if we are going to give to God what is God's, what does that mean we need to give him? All of us. Everything. Everything we have is made to honor and worship God. Everything we have is meant to go back to him. This is who we are. To be made in the image is to reflect the light of his image. So we're made in the image. Who is the actual image? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This is speaking of Jesus. He is the image that provides the light. And we are meant to reflect that light. That's what it, meant, that's what it means to be made in his image. Um, I talked about this at men's breakfast a couple months ago, so fellas, you're going to get a repeat, but it's still true. N.T. Wright in talking about what it means to be an image, he calls it an angled mirror through which the worship and creation is reflected up to God and stewardship and love and purposes of God are reflected out into the world. So you have a mirror. Um, I thought about bringing one and then I forgot. Um, 3 a.m., everyone. (laughs) Um, um, So you have a mirror. If it's flat, if it's facing up, just what's coming down is just going to be reflected straight up, which, by the way, is what God deserves. He deserves to have everything that's coming down here be reflected up to him, but he chooses not to do that. He chooses to angle the mirror to make it sit so it, you know, if, if like I said, I had a mirror with my laser pointer, <laughs> it would come straight down and it angles out. His glory and grace and goodness comes down onto us, and it is our vocation to then reflect that goodness out to creation. And it is also our vocation to take the praise and honor that creation gives to God and reflect it back up to him. Jesus, in this turn of phrase, is essentially saying, as one made in the image of God, you are part of a community of other images of God. So to properly worship me as an image, pay your taxes as it helps others that are made in my image. After all, it's God's anyway, right? All of it, it all belongs to God. Really, the gold and silver with Caesar's face on it, it's just on loan to Caesar. It's Caesar's job to steward it, but it's God's job to determine if it's being stewarded well, not ours. But it is our job to take the stuff that God has given us and steward it well. And stewarding it well means giving it back to him. All of it. Because remember the image that we're reflecting. The image that we're reflecting is of a God who was crucified. Who willingly gave his life to save ours. Who gave up everything for a restored relationship with us. So Christians, fellow disciples, 
fellow images. How are we doing? Giving up everything, is, it's, not, it's not an easy task. It's not something we can just flip like a switch and do it tomorrow. Um, because really, it doesn't mean just throw away everything and go live in a box. It might for somebody. For some of us, it might mean literally selling everything you have and giving everything away. Uh, look back to Mark 10 for that with the rich young ruler. But for most of us, it means spending our lives and the time and place that God has us in, using the resources he gave us to bless and shine his light on others. Often at a cost, often at a way that doesn't feel good. Extra time spent, extra money spent, resources spent on people you don't like, getting more while you have less. But that, that is a backwards earthly way of thinking about it, getting more having less to give more. God is infinite. There is, there is no amount you can give that will leave you hungry. Spiritually. God might have you starve to death. <laughs> it depends. We all have different callings, which is why I'm not trying to give like extra examples um, because the thing in your head right now, the thing you're thinking about where you could be giving yourself and your love and worship to God and using it to bless others for the Lord, that thing in your head right now, that's the example. The thing that when Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, you go, oh, what about that? Do I, do I get rid of that, really? Yes, it's that thing. In fact, probably especially that. This is something, it's a lifelong journey for all of us, including me. Like, I'm, I'm far from having this down. We don't, um, we've said it often, I don't, Mike and BJ, we don't come stand up here because we have it figured out. Far from it. We're students like you guys. Um, so as an example of my life, as a lot of you guys who know me know, I'm a big, dumb nerd. <laughs> I, I really enjoy sci-fi and fantasy pop culture. I enjoy playing games and the books and the movies and shows that go along with it. And I have seen the Lord do, Lord do good work through it. I've seen the Lord work through these silly little hobbies. Time well spent with my family. It allows me to spend time with a community of people in this area who otherwise wouldn't have contact with another Christian. But there have been other times in my life when I've used hobbies and interests to shut out the world. Don't talk to me. I need to spend this whole next 12 hours between the ending of my shift and the beginning of my next one uh, to play this, this one game. I've ignored friends, and I've put off responsibilities. Now, one might be tempted to say, well, you should give up that thing. And trust me, I, I tried, and I found a new thing. <laughs> Turns out the thing wasn't the problem. My heart was the problem. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. This is not a moderation talk. I'm not talking about everything in moderation. You know, if you come away from this saying, oh, I can still do drugs as long as I do them from the Lord. No, wrong message. Don't do that. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Sometimes it is the thing. Sometimes the thing is the problem and you need to get rid of the thing. It takes discernment to figure that out sometimes, though. Other times it's pretty clear. If you need help determining, then let's talk. But here's, here's the point. You and I were created for a specific purpose. 
designed to operate a certain way. That's unique for us individually. But it's still meant to yield the same result. And that is the blessing of creation and the honoring of God. Your talents, your gifts, your mentality are all made by God. And day to day and moment by moment, we can choose to use them in a way that solely benefits us, in a way that makes self happy, regardless of how it affects others around it, around us. Or we can look up to the cross. We can see what our Savior has given for us. And we can choose to give everything back to him. Worship team, you can come back up. How do we do that? How do we determine the things that are meant to be given to God and the things that are just meant to be thrown away? And how do we determine how to give those things to God? The same way I actually talked about in the beginning. We open our Bibles together. We pray together. We celebrate and we mourn together. We correct each other when we need correcting. We encourage each other when we need encouraging. We walk through this together in, in the light of the Holy Spirit, always seeking his wisdom, always seeking his wisdom from above and from each other as brothers and sisters. I know I already read this passage, but I'm going to close with it. Uh, back to First Thessalonians 5. We exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idols, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone, See to it that no one repays evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't stifle the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. But test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you love us, that you care for us, that we would steward what you've given us well, that everything we have, every bit of us, would be given back to you, Father that your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your love would saturate us, saturate those around us. Lord, I pray that we would conform our ways to you. In Jesus' name.